Welcome to the Leadership Pulse, Healthcare Culture's New Heartbeat. My name is Becky Wolf. I am the host, and I am beyond excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Keith Matheny. Dr. Matheny is a Vanderbilt-trained otolaryngologist in community practice in North Dallas, emphasizing lenology and sleep medicine in adults and children. He has a passion for the business aspects of otolaryngology, as well as new technology, pharmacotherapy, and procedures in ENT. Dr. Matheny holds numerous patents and patents pending on bioabsorbable local drug delivery implants for use in sinus and ear surgery, founding two device companies around these technologies, Septum Solutions and Otologic Solutions. He's also the founder, chairman, and CEO of US ENT Partners, an ENT-focused group purchasing organization bringing savings of 20% or more on the high-cost supplies that ENT physicians use in their office daily as well as the co-founder of Sleep Vigil, a company pioneering the concept of remote patient monitoring for sleep apnea. Dr. Matheny has numerous journal publications and has given numerous presentations on his clinical research and on various topics related to the business of medicine over the past few decades. As a creative outlet, Dr. Matheny makes custom 3D printed jewelry within his company, Tough Links. He volunteers in his community providing charity clinics for multiple school districts ar around his practice serving on the local YMCA board and as the otolaryngologist for the Dallas Cowboys. Dr. Matheny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Becky. You didn't mention anything I did in elementary school, but uh, I know, that, like, was, what, that was what, a very thorough, <laughs> thorough introduction. Maybe the most thorough I've ever had. My first question was going to be, so what haven't you done, first of all? <laughs> yeah. Is that from the FBI or where, where did that? Yeah. My goodness. Well, welcome. I am pumped to have you here. I you know, had the opportunity to talk with you before the podcast and just love everything that you're involved in, what you've done, seeing the needs early in your practice. Um, so just really excited about this conversation. Well, thank you. Yeah. And my apologies that I am literally in one of my exam rooms because I just finished clinic about 30 seconds ago. All good. All good. And as we'll talk about in the next 20 minutes, I haven't even begun my charting. Uh, one of the most fun things about being a doctor nowadays. Yes. And uh, so, yeah. yeah, but I'm really glad to be here. Thank That's you. That's awesome. Great. Yeah. All the detailed stuff with charting that comes with uh, practice, right? The clinic <laughs> days. So, all right. So I want to start off by asking a question. It's a very general question to get us started and then we'll uh, kind of veer from there. But what is something you want everyone in healthcare to know about culture, leadership, or medicine in general right now? Well, I, I tend to be very optimistic, uh, Becky, and, you know, I... I continue to see even my, I thought a lot about this question since you posed it a few weeks ago. I see even my older daughter who wants to follow in my footsteps, well, set her own footsteps, but she's going to go into medicine as well. And we continue to attract, you know, in the medical field and the advanced practitioner fields, the best and the brightest. Uh, but it's really changed what it means to practice um, and what we're doing minute by minute, day by day as practitioners has really changed even just over my 25 plus year career. And um, again, even though it's a wonderful profession, I hope some of the concepts we talk about today and we start dialogues about how we can improve the quality of life for the providers because our colleagues are leaving the profession in droves due to burnout, due mm -hmm. to uh, things that will develop, but the upward delegation of tasks to physicians, which keep us from doing yeah. what we want to do, which is interact with patients and care for them. Mm -hmm. 
so that's, yeah. again, I think we can fix it. I think we can improve it. And I never discourage a young person from going into this profession because it's hard to beat. It's hard to pick something that would be more rewarding and still, you know, provides a, a wonderful lifestyle. Uh, but we still have some work to do to, to make sure that it stays that way. Yeah. So there are so many things I could highlight from what you just said. Um, let me start by asking this question, though. Um, you said, you know, practice has changed. What are some of the big changes that you've noticed since you came out of um, fellowship and started practicing and what you're yeah. noticing right now? Freedom. Now, I, again, am not someone that thinks that some of these safeguards and, and things that have happened over my couple of decades, two decades and a half, um, are not good and in the patient's best interest and even the system's best interest. But I, I span a time when um, we had paper charts and we had really uh, a lot more autonomy as clinicians to decide what was best for our patient intervention-wise, medication-wise, and I've seen that be chipped away little by little to the point where the way I practice now is unrecognizable, even just in that 25 years. And I'm even kind of synthesizing this thought as, as we're speaking now. You know, when I have a, a partner who just joined us a year ago, and I think back when I was in his shoes, uh, just being able to to see patients and scribble a few notes in a paper chart and essentially be done, but have everything that I needed to remember and to care for that patient the next visit or to uh, plan a surgical intervention or what have you, it was all right there. And so I spent my 10 hours of clinical care, mostly 95% and 98% dealing with patients to where I am now, where we're 12 or 13 years into having mandated electronic medical records, which are not all bad. I mean, there's so many amazing features to this, but <laughs> that was imposed upon us 2009, 2010, 2011, where we had to incur great costs. There was no uh, re reimbursement for going electronic or anything like that. In fact, there were financial penalties if we didn't. So we had to incur great cost to do that. And since that day, which we implemented our first electronic record in September of 2010, I haven't remotely seen the same number of patients and nobody has. And we have all these sophisticated methods to improve that. We have our medical assistant scribing. Some people have formal scribes. I'll be doing a, a talk very much like this tomorrow night um, with one of my partnerships with Microsoft, a company and a technology called Nuance, where there's we can use our phone basically in an app as our scribe. But no matter what we do, hours and hours have been inculcated and forced into our day that really are not direct patient care. And I've seen that trend more and more and more for example, uh, prescribing narcotics after a tonsillectomy, so very simple surgery that hurts. You know, in pediatrics, uh, a lot of times the pharmacists, at least here in Texas, if they'll even dispense a narcotic, they'll only give it for three days. 
And so no matter where I am, I recently uh, was presenting in Australia and New Zealand. And on numerous occasions, I had to find Wi-Fi, get out my two-factor authentication to refill my patient's narcotics because my physician assistant couldn't do it, my medical assistant couldn't do it. So it's gotten in some instances to the point of absurdity how much a clinician now has to do things like that that just don't don't add value to our patient interaction and they certainly decrease from our quality of life i then think about the difference and i was so naive starting practice on how you got a surgery approved and how you ever got paid for it uh, but now i see the payers routinely um, playing cat and mouse games and and really changing the rules midstream, um, you know, telling you on numerous occasions by contract that a certain procedural code doesn't require prior authorization. And then you in good faith perform that intervention. A lot of times as I do a lot of my surgeries in the office, I incur cost for the supplies. And then I find out 30 days later that the insurance company says, well, wait a minute, we want to examine your records and truly see if that surgery was indicated. When contractually they say it's up to my judgment and no prior authorization by the insurance company is required. And so that's already been 30 days. So I had to pay my invoices for the equipment that I used. And trust me, medical supplies are not 25 or 30 cents. You know, it's tens of thousands of dollars per invoice. And then there's another 45 days, 60 days of fighting with them back and forth and me using staff, me getting on the telephone myself just to get paid for something I did now 90 days ago that didn't require authorization. And if I neglect any of those steps, they win. I, don't, I just don't get paid. And that happens to myself and my colleagues every day. So there's so many things that sound so negative for someone that purports to be an optimist, but I'm a realist. I mean, this is what it's really like. So every patient chart, what used to take a few seconds, honestly takes 14, the average, I think it's 14 to 16 minutes. That's even with other people contributing to the chart. Well, when you see, you know, my, between myself and my physician assistant, I have one just like you are. You know, we'll see 30 or 40 patients in a clinic day, maybe more. That is three, four, six hours of work outside of clinic time just for that. Then I'm talking to insurance companies, yeah. submitting records, getting paid 90 days later. It's uh, morphed immensely from yeah. when I started. I remember the days of paper charting. I remember all of that. And it seemed so much more simple. And like you said, there was more FaceTime with patients. You just were able to have a better relationship with them, um, collaborate in their care a little bit more. And then the headaches you're just describing with insurance. Um, and I, you know, I've spoken with other physicians, but they definitely see that as a source of burnout of how do I have to prove my worth every day of what I know to be right for my patient. And um, the, the physicians we've seen here, and I want to get into this a little bit too, are thinking about creative solutions on how to help. And uh, as part of what you've done, you started US ENT Solutions. Can you talk a little bit about that? What was the impetus behind starting that and exactly what it is? For the sake of brevity, 
USCNT is a, a company that really aids and abets physicians, not just ENTs now. We work with a lot of allergists, a lot of sleep physicians too, but it aids and abets independent practice. You know, I am absolutely as an individual not opposed to outside investment into our practices. And, and I've been on many interviews discussing the, the pros of that topic. But I don't ever want our colleagues to be forced to go out of business, to sell their practice uh, at a discount, to partner with a hospital system or some other organization because they have to. So what USENT is, it's a, a company that provides meaningful discounts, as you said at the outset, on the high cost supplies that it takes to practice ENT. But it's also an organization and my, my team of account managers are constantly identifying new revenue opportunities for physicians, uh, business efficiencies, because let's face it, and this was my story too, we all go to school or into our early 30s, mid 30s, and never have a single three hour class of business 101. And then we're unleashed on these multi million dollar businesses, and as expected, they're not run very well. And so, that all that's really the mission of USMT is to tidy up the business sides of, of ENT delivery to allow the physicians to focus on patient care. And that really to be very brief, was born out of lessons I learned joining two wonderful physicians 25 years ago, but the people like the rest of us that wanted to focus on patient care and kind of taking over business operations because nobody else raised their hand to do it, improving things, learning a lot of lessons, learning from mistakes, and then forming a consulting company to help people around me and then that grew into the national organization we have today with thousands of physicians as members. So it seemed uh, just from that part of the story, so it seemed like I'll kind of take this because nobody else really is going to stand up here. Yeah, that's 100%. <laughs> yeah, now I discovered that I love it, but I didn't know that before. That was what I was getting at. So do you think there are certain characteristics uh, that are necessary to, uh, I guess, be involved or... Uh, I guess, even like the, uh, the business aspect of medicine? Or what are you you're finding as well with USCNT partners, uh, those that have partnered with your uh, organization? What have you found to be a common denominator with all of you? Yeah, most most of my colleagues don't um, want to do this part. They, it's not that I, I love my patients. I have fantastic patients, especially at this point in my career. And I love doing the procedures, especially. Um, but I, I love doing the business side too. And I'm in the vast minority. Most of my colleagues, while they're very interested in their own um, retirement planning and their financial planning and things like that, they're really not interested in hard, hardcore negotiations with the sinus balloon company or the hearing aid company for best pricing and the insurance companies. They really want someone else to take care of that. And nobody's really been taking care of that for them. So physicians, while reimbursement has gone down and just the sheer number of patients and procedures that we can do has gone down. So that means the revenue has really shrunk. Costs have risen exponentially. I mentioned we were just told to go electronic. Well, that's not a $100 mandate. 
each of our software licenses every year is tens of thousands of dollars for a practice. I only have four partners and two mid-level providers. And then the initial system was six figures. And that's on and on and on. So it's getting more expensive to practice. We're getting less reimbursement per encounter. And we have less encounters because there is now so much ancillary responsibility that the physician herself or himself has to do, can't be delegated. Uh, it's just really the perfect storm. <laughs> yeah. So you stepped in and you're handling all the, a lot of the business aspect then for some of your partners are just like, Hey, I, I need somebody to manage this. What have you learned about yourself in that process? And how have you grown as a leader taking on entrepreneurial endeavors as well as being, being a physician? Yeah, I think what I've learned personally um, is not to be embarrassed about the fact that I like it and mm. to not be afraid to be great. There's, uh, you know, we, I guess it's human nature just to kind of stay with the pack. And uh, I've learned that, listen, these, these other folks, it's not that they're not capable of doing it. They just don't have the passion for it. I do. So I, I feel a huge sense of responsibility, to be honest, to take what I've learned and the relationships that have, have come through this, this journey on building all these companies to help everybody. And that's very gratifying and rewarding for me. So I think that's, that's what I've learned as a general answer to leadership. Now, being a leader, um, I've had to learn some some hard lessons for me. I don't like conflict. I like peace. I like everyone to get along. Um, I don't like firing people. I don't like all that. And so those have been the huge growth opportunities. We should probably spend a minute talking about this thing, but learning how to say no, uh, because I'm I'm a pretty busy person now, and being really, really stingy with my time. Um, I literally just opened an email looking for the link to start this. And, you know, someone has some other technology they want me to, to schedule on their calendar to weigh on my opinion on that. No, I, I, I appreciate what you're doing, but I need to focus on what I've already bitten off. I need to chew on that and help the people I've committed to. Uh, also realizing, you know, along the way, so many people that, have come into my life for a season that I thought would be business associates um, forever. But recognizing that while every, and I just journaled about this the other day, where every you know human, there's every life is so valuable and there's sanctity in it. That doesn't mean everyone has to work for you. <laughs> and you need to find the people that really can perform in a certain role. And it, it can be awkward, but you're not doing yourself or other people any favors. If someone isn't performing well, giving them that critical feedback and, and sending them somewhere where they can. And so these are the, these are the things individually I've, I'm still learning, I mean, but I've gotten a little bit better at than maybe 10 or 15 years ago. That's tough. It's lonely to be in charge when you want to be friendly and you can still be friendly, but when you want to be friends, you can't lead. It's a very mm -hmm. lonely position. 
And that's another thing is not to be afraid of that. That's part of not being afraid of being great, to stand up out of the foxhole yeah. and lead. Uh, mm -hmm. You're going to be by yourself. And you have to know yeah. that's what you're signing up for. What's helped you uh, in those periods of loneliness? Like, who do you reach out to, or what's helped you get through when that's what you're facing? Yeah. So, kind of the flip side of that coin in each of my companies, and certainly here in my practice, it's realizing I'm not alone and having an amazing inner team for each company that I rely immensely upon. Um, and then, uh, and this, this will be music to your ears, but working with someone who used to be a, a personal counselor for me and a marriage counselor, but now has really become the coach, if you will, a life coach. Mm -hmm. And well, I try not to put too much energy into negativity ever. I mean, I actively resist it. You know, that one hour a week or so and an occasional text message here or there, that's the place that I can really bitch and moan. Mm -hmm. And I can really let my hair down and kind of vomit that stuff up. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's that's a healthy way to do it, not to be consumed with the negativity all the time and the challenges and the defeats and the setbacks, but not to completely sweep it under the rug. Right. So I think that's the answer twofold, is having a trusted, confidant coach, um, admitting that you need that in your life and you need that help but then finding that inner circle of people that you really can trust and rely on to lighten your load a little bit. Yeah. What I've done interestingly just over the last couple of weeks, finally, is because uh, you know each of my companies are totally separate. My key people now have kind of gotten to know each other, but they really have no business relationship. And so I've started using a virtual assistant, virtual uh, admin really. And so she has created, and it took a, an act of Congress, but she has created a master calendar that only five people have and only five people will ever see, but they actually know where I am at any given time. And even still, um, they don't have access to schedule things, but it's been, I've seen it's been really frustrating for my people who, you know, have to kind of text me, hey, do you, when do you have time to do this or that? Mm -hmm. And uh, they have to wait for me, first of all, to look at all my calendars and then yeah. give them some time. And all. This, is, this is so much easier. But I think those kind of life hacks have really helped mm -hmm. me. And I know it's helped my, my inner circle already. Yeah. Immensely. That's awesome. So just recapping. So when you're feeling lonely, like kind of flipping, you said the coin, you have a team around you who you feel supported by and you have somebody that's a personal mentor in your life or a coach who you can, that's holding you accountable, but then is also kind of helping you change perspective likely. Uh, and those moments are even just being that safe space oh, yeah. to talk, right? He's not scared to <laughs> speak the truth. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he, mm -hmm. <laughs> he speaks it as it is, yes. which is what you need. Mm -hmm. You don't need, um, it's easy to find a whole bunch of yes mm -hmm. people, right? You need someone that's honest with you yep. that will give you good feedback, but will mostly give you critical feedback mm -hmm. uh, or just be quiet and let you kind of connect the dots in your head. Like as soon as you say something out loud, you're like, well, that's really stupid. Okay. Yeah. I need to let that go yeah. or I need to think about that differently. Mm -hmm. 
it's it's invaluable yeah yeah we all need that yeah we say it's fighting for the highest possible good of the person that we're connected to right so whoever i'm coaching mm-hmm. i'm fighting for them and that means honestly challenging them to what i know that they're capable of their full potential and in those moments i'm like this is why i do what i do it is so fun to see people grow and just see them thrive so i bet yeah yeah, I bet. yeah that's that's critical that you have that person so uh, another, another thing you touched on, and, and I'm kind of two questions in one here. Have you experienced burnout? And if you have, have you managed it? And what habits have you created? So kind of, I guess, three parts of the question. What habits have you created to kind of safeguard um, you from experiencing burnout? Yeah, I have. You know, it's it's a little safer slightly to admit that, but it's still, um, especially in professions like healthcare or, you know, elite athletics. Um, I'm here in Dallas and, and work with the Cowboys. And so Dak Prescott, his brother, um, was really besieged by mental illness. And and he had, Dak had the courage to speak out on that. I think it was a year or two ago. And, and still you get a lot of flack, but it's certainly better now than it has been before. But the, the first time I think for me, I recognized true burnout uh, was during my residency training. Mm-hmm. And for those who, who may not know, uh, this this path is, is a strange one that we voluntarily sign up for. So someone like me, I went to school twice. So kindergarten through 12, and then college is four years, med school is four years. My residency was five years. Many people do six, seven, eight of, of training after medical school. So after you, you finish medical school, you have an MD, but you are not a doctor. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in the next couple of years, you kind of sort of become a baby doctor, meaning where you're actually responsible enough and knowledgeable enough to actually care for some other human life. Mm-hmm. And then you layer on knowledge and experience after that. And uh, so that, that takes you into your mid-30s. The, the residency training hours have been limited somewhat. So this is sad that this is the reform. Mm-hmm. The reform is now that you cannot work more than 80 hours in a week and you cannot work more than 24 hours consecutively. Like that's supposed to be good. Mm-hmm. So that's terrible still, but that shows you how bad it was before. And I finished my training at Vanderbilt one day before the new hours went into effect. So even though I had wonderful professors and training program uh, people responsible for us, uh, they got their money's worth out of us, to say the least. And so I don't remember exactly where it was, but the first time I really truly had burnout, perhaps you know some depressive type symptoms, I don't want to pretend like I'm a psychiatrist, I'm not, was somewhere along the way where you're just... You never, you never see the sun um, because you're in the hospital at three or four in the morning. You're working all through the night, most of the time without sleep. You work the next day as if you had slept the night before, whatever sleep it is to be there at the hospital at three or four in the morning. Plus the stress of what you're actually doing. <laughs> I mean, you're learning and you're getting, you know, yelled at if you're not performing well, and all these things. And you're dealing with life and death. And uh, never seen your family, you know, I, and uh, so I know that was the first time, but you, at least for us, I mean, you make it through to the end of that. 
Um, and it certainly is is better, but I think for me the the latest crossroads has been the maturation of all these businesses over the let's say the last two to three years. <clears throat> At the same time as uh, COVID happened and the economic impact of of COVID on my practice, plus all the things that we talked about five minutes ago, the decreased revenue, the increased workload. So all of that has um, intersected. And so I wouldn't say burned out, but I will freely admit that it's made me think about a different timeline to retiring from medicine than I really thought about five years ago. And I think I said it, physicians are leaving the profession in droves and we're not training enough to replace them. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's an epidemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one statistic I read was by 2033, there will be a shortage of primary care physicians of around 130,000. That was one mm -hmm. of the stats that I read. I'm like, that is insane to yeah. me. And, and the specialists are similar. Is it? Okay. And maybe even on a sooner timeline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the late 2020s. Yeah. So, as our elderly population grows, you know, and I'm contributing to that as I get older, uh, we have fewer and fewer people to take care of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what healthy habits have you established or what has helped you um, manage? You have a lot going on <laughs> in your life mm -hmm. with all of the companies that you're in charge of and mm -hmm. practice. How do you take care of yourself? What does that look like? Yeah. So I'll start with a short personal story of that time while I was still at Vanderbilt. So I, I woke up one morning um, to be at the hospital. Yeah, I was probably an upper level resident. So I had the luxury of not being there until about five in the morning. You know, there's this hierarchy of people. The lower on the totem pole you are, the earlier you get there for rounds before surgery. Surgery starts, you know, at 7, 7.30. So you have to do everything in the three or four hours before that. And I had crushing chest pain. I, um, you know, have always been very active and exercised and played athletics uh, at a high level before medicine. And so I was even in my late 20s thinking, what in the world? Like, there's no way I could be having a heart attack right now. Thankfully, it wasn't. Long story short, it was a true manifestation of the stress. Uh, what it turned out to be was an esophageal spasm acid reflux, an extreme form of acid reflux, but all the symptoms of, of a true heart attack, including, I mean, we even, my wife even called an ambulance and uh, they gave me the sublingual nitroglycerin, which relaxed my esophagus. So I felt better, but that even made me more concerned that it actually was a cardiac event because the nitro worked. So my training program and what I literally went from the ER, we discussed whether or not I needed to go into the cath lab or not. They gave me the rest of that one day off. <laughs> so I literally was going from thinking I had a heart attack, but I had to be back at work the next morning at five or four thirty. But I spent the rest of that day um, at the public library. And I went, got a book by Deepak Chopra. Uh, you know, a leading Western physician. He's an endocrinologist by training. Most people know him for his uh, Eastern 
philosophical bent. I think he's just a brilliant person that kind of marries Eastern and Western medicine. He talks so much about the mind-body connection. So I read his first book rapidly, probably mostly that day, um, Ageless Body, Timeless Mind. And that inspired me. So here's finally the answer to your question. (laughs) That inspired me to start meditating. So I was already exercising as I could. It was sporadic in those days of training. Now that's a very regular thing. So that's important too to my health. I commit to that at least six or seven, all seven days a week, but meditating as well. And not just sitting there, you know, when the, the classic, you know, with your your index finger and your thumb touching, but really learning what it means to meditate, to quiet your mind, to really think of nothing. And just to reset, like rebooting your computer. It's amazing what that does physiologically. Mm-hmm. So I've committed to that and do that most most days. Um, since then, that was probably 27, 28 years ago. And then um, more recently with the help of my, my coach, um, really recognizing boundaries. You know, I said it a second ago, learning how to say no being really stingy with my time, but at the same time, being really efficient with my time. And, uh, you know, I've learned five minutes is a long time. I can get a lot done if I'm truly focused and present there. And just spending my day, you know, there I, I naturally get up early, so get the head start on the day, but also taking time um, to be with my family in the evenings, most of the time, uh, and taking breaks. Uh, so I feel like I have where I am now in my early 50s, um, healthier boundaries. I have more peace with the conflict that I signed up for. That's just the nature of my job, being the boss of, of so many things. There's, there's gonna be a lot of conflict every day. Uh, but remembering that I, I cannot execute any of these positions even reasonably well if I'm not healthy mm-hmm. physically and mentally first. Yeah, yeah. It makes a big difference when we show up as like we have a, a full tank, right? When we show up and we're healthy, we can give that away to other people. And we allow other people to do the same for themselves. That's what I tell people that I coach all the time. I'm like, if I show up and I'm healthy, I have the ability to multiply that health into every single person I touch. If I'm showing up stressed or upset, those behaviors are then translated to the people that I'm around. And then they think it's normal or, you know, you show up and the tension can be so thick. So that's a great point. Yeah. Well, think about what you and I do, right? In healthcare, if we showed up that way, and these people already have some illness or they wouldn't be sitting in our office. And if we show up that way, how are we supposed to help them? Um, But certainly as we, we mentor staff and we run businesses. How, how can we? We must first take care of ourselves. And it's funny how that spills over into healthier personal relationships, right? Yep. When um, you are healthier on your own, mm-hmm. it's amazing how much better relationships with other people function, right? Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like those healthy habits that you've engaged in have led over or bled over to the personal relationships as well. So creating boundaries for work and then making sure you're present at home 
Was that is that an accurate statement? Better, yeah. better. I mean, you have to mm -hmm. interview them, see if they agree. <laughs> <laughs> but because um, they, I think most people would say I still mm -hmm. do too much, but I, I love it. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I kind of use that as my own internal barometer. I mean, mm -hmm. there's. I'm busy and I'm tired, but there's not much that I resent. I mean, I, I feel like I really enjoy. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty good barometer yeah. of what I should be doing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think so. Would you change anything going back and um, starting the business ventures? Is there anything you would do differently? Maybe the one thing earlier, and in, in maybe if I can talk for a second about my daughter, when I know we got to wrap up the... Mm -hmm. I would appreciate the journey way more. Mm -hmm. So I've seen this phenomenon. You know, my office now, we're very blessed to have a lot of, I call them kids. I mean, they're young adults, the kids to me that are taking a year or two years or more between college and going off to PA school, uh, nurse and nest to school or medical school, whatever. And that's really healthy when done right. So the vast majority of my medical school class, I mean, except for maybe four or five people out of 200, went straight from college. And I was fortunate to go to the med school I wanted to go to, the residency I wanted to go to. And I just spent the whole time, or a lot of the time, just resisting how hard it was and focusing on that and not really appreciating where I was, what I was learning, and certainly now I look back just think, gosh, I've learned so much and that's allowed me to do this and allowed me to do that. So I, I would answer your question that I would go back and appreciate it. I know it wouldn't make it any e easier, but I think emotionally it would have made it a lot easier, even from a burnout standpoint. So I see my daughter making that healthier choice. You know, she went to a very rigorous high school rigorous pre-medical training and she did well she recognized that she needed a, a break and she's working here in my office and she's loving it she's the low person on the totem pole so she's um you know not doing anything glamorous um, i mean once in a while she'll get to see some of my procedures and stuff but she mm -hmm. she's treated equally mm -hmm. and that being said i can already see she's only been here less than a month and she graduated from college I can see that she's really happy. And I also can fast forward a year or two and see her sitting in the lecture hall at medical school and things meaning so much more to her than they did to me mm -hmm. because she's been out in patient care, real clinical care for a couple of years. And she also appreciates not being the low person on the totem pole anymore in that scenario. You know, she's, she's actually taking the next step towards what she wants to mm -hmm. do. And that, that reminds me, probably this is a good thing to end on. The people ask me all day, every day, if I discourage her from going into medicine. And I say, hell, no, I've never one time ever. Even I, even when she was a baby and I was having that, that acid reflux episode, never would. It's a fantastic opportunity to take care of people. Where else can you spend... 30 minutes, an hour, two hours of your time and completely change someone's life. I mean, there are other things that can, kind of, but in medicine, we do that patient after patient, day after day. It's a great profession. And then, by the way, you can still really make a good living if you run your business well. 
So I would never discourage. Um, there are things that I hope to participate in some change where it improves things for her generation of healthcare providers. But absolutely no, I've never one time discouraged her from it. I think it's a fabulous uh, profession. Yeah. Fantastic. Now that's a, that's a great way to end. She's lucky to have you as a dad who is intuitive and has gone through his own journey of self-awareness and, and seeing her for who she is and knowing what she's needing to. So you tell her that, that, you know, she's still, she's still at the age, maybe she's emerging where she thinks I don't know anything yet. As all, all kids she just do. needs what, a couple more years and then she'll be like, he was right. Yeah, she's yeah. <laughs> My goodness. Well, thanks so much for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for this opportunity. Yeah. Where can people find you? So probably the best, uh, very active on social media and specifically LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, I'm very active on there and, and uh, people that direct message me or post comments on my various posts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try to be real responsive. So that's probably the best place uh, to reach me. And of course, my, my practice here is in North Dallas. It's called Collin County Ear, Nose, and Throat. Uh, so that's how you can hunt it down. Fantastic. And then I'll post all of the other uh, businesses you're affiliated with in the uh, show notes. So again, appreciate your time. And thanks everyone for listening to the Leadership Pulse. Thank you, Becky.